Hello, and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast, Episode 1. Today we will be discussing death movies. Specifically, characters in movies who film or video acts of murder in the movie that they are in. And not uh, to be confused with mixtape DVDs or VHSs such as uh, Traces of Death or Faces of Death, um, online videos like Three Guys, One Hammer, or any website like the uh, theync.com or crazyshit.com or DVDs such as uh, Fubar, the MD Pope series. Because those are totally separate things. Totally separate things um, and a different type of entertainment. So, won't really be talking about that so much, because I'm not here to do a movie review on the new Suicide Squad, because I don't care. But, uh, lately, lately I have just kind of stumbled through, uh, stumbled upon, rather, several movies where there are killers murderers, serial killers in a movie that um, is documenting their crimes. And not like a snuff film where the idea is to distribute these, um, these works, but sort of for their own pleasure. Uh, there is... There will be a couple. There will be a couple that are um, leaning towards the existence of snuff films and alluding to them, um, both in real life and fictitiously. So, let's get into it. This podcast is sponsored by Coffee. Enter the promo code COFFEE. Enter the promo code Coffee Skeleton Factory at checkout for 20% off of your order. Okay, so I think the best examples of um, film um, considered found footage. I think found footage films have, have a little bit of a uh, bad reputation. People kind of roll their eyes and, you know, think of... Um, Paranormal Activity or the Blair Witch movies to be the standard bearers of found footage films and just not interested in watching them. But, I mean, Blair Witch really made a huge impact on found footage movies. Um, maybe not on a large mainstream level, but definitely in more independent and underground films for sure. And um, it's typically 
doing a found footage film is um, a lot of times a necessity for a production that has limited budget. But, uh, you know, there's movies out there that do a really good job with um, with that. They're able to hide their low budgetness through the filter of, hey, this is a found footage film. Um, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to discuss cannibal Holocaust. Um, I love cannibal Holocaust. I love cannibal Ferox. I love all the kind of, um, you know, cannibal apocalypse. Um, (laughs) anything with John Saxon, I'll watch pretty much, but, um, including Beverly Hills cop three, but I'm not going to talk about, uh, you know, obviously cannibal Holocaust is considered like the first found footage film. And I, and really without that angle to the movie, like, I don't want to say that Cannibal Holocaust wouldn't be as legendary as it is now, but uh, I think it, it, it added a level of sophistication. <laughs> it added a level of uh, thoughtful, um, it added a thoughtfulness to the writing of that movie. And a lot of people would probably roll their eyes to um to that but because it's hard to look past all the uh animal cruelty in the movie and scenes of rape and stuff like that but you know um at the end of the day that's cannibal holocaust still is like really the first big found footage film before that term even really existed and then there was blair witch um project um some people like Blair Witch, the uh, original Blair Witch Project. Some people don't. Uh, I personally, uh, I do like it. Like, if I had to recommend it to somebody, I would recommend it. I wouldn't say it's my favorite film. It's not my favorite horror film. Um, it's not my favorite black and white film. It's not my favorite found footage film. But it's um, the first low-budget found footage film that was able to make a ton of money just off of hype and um, being really the first to use the internet at a, you know, the time when at a time when the internet was pretty, pretty young and had to hype up a movie and um, you know, considering what studios pay for advertising for movies nowadays, I mean, the Blair Witch Project was uh, was able to drum up a, a type of hype that you just can't get for movies nowadays. But nowadays, you need hundreds of millions of dollars to let people know that, you know, they're gonna fucking remake your favorite movie <laughs> and piss you off and make you thumbs down the trailer on YouTube. In the early 2000s, there was the August Underground series. Uh, August Underground. Um, the original from 2001 was a was a film, a uh, found footage film that was uh, directed by Fred Vogel from Totec Productions. And he said in multiple interviews... Um, how initially he wanted to make August Underground um, a 
and distribute it sort of secretly. I don't know exactly in what way he meant, but uh, he wanted to get he wanted to get the video in every major city in the United States uh, and in people's hands, but um, have people believe that what they were watching was real and not um, a a slickly made special effects gore fest. Um, August Underground follows a serial killer and his cameraman. It's two guys, and it shows their crimes, their their murder, kidnapping, torture of their victims. And it's shot in such a way that feels very real. Very real. Uh, the special effects are uh, pretty damn good. They're pretty damn good. And the fact that the camera quality was so low, it really added to the grittiness of making it look even that much more real. And uh, August Underground had a 2003 sequel, August Underground's Mortem. And August Underground's Mortem is probably the more popular of the August Underground series. Um, I mean, if I had a favorite, I would probably say Mortem's my favorite. Um, the first uh, August Underground one, um, like I like a lot, but I think it's just, it's, it's a close second. And uh, August Underground's Mortem was um, same killer character, but now he had a girlfriend, and the girlfriend's uh, brother was involved, and they were in like an incestuous relationship, and it was following the um their it was their Video murder uh, journal. Their video of these three people who were clearly crazy and uh, wanted to document their torture and kidnapping, murder, rape of uh, innocent people. Um. The third August Underground uh, film, August Underground's Penance, came out in 2007, was, I mean, I like the overall pace of Penance, but um, I don't I don't particularly like it as much as um, the first two. Um, the quality of the video is actually a little bit better, and if you've watched the first two video uh, movies, you... You know, there's there's enough breathing room in between scenes because because there's really no real narrative in any of the movies. It's sort of like it goes from scene to scene to scene to scene, and you don't know how much time has gone on in between scenes. It could be hours. It could be weeks. You never really know. All you know is every time uh, the camera turns on. And goes to it, you know, it, it's the same characters. Um, 
and the camera, you can tell the camera quality is a little better in uh, August Underground's Penance. So if you've seen the the earlier ones, you kind of think to yourself like, oh, at some point they must have killed somebody for a nicer camera. Like they upgraded. They probably did. These characters probably did some type of home invasion or, um, you know, invaded an electronics <laughs> circuit city <laughs> and and stole a bunch of uh, nicer uh, camera equipment and then killed everybody and probably documented it. Um, that being said, I'm, uh, Penance actually, I think, has the most... Um, story like they're the most narrative in it because you can see the sort of deterioration of the main characters um their minds i mean they're clearly already violent and crazy but um you see them start to crumble quite a bit quite a bit more in that movie and none of the movies really have um you know, uh, there's really no one you're rooting for. Um, there's no protagonist necessarily. I guess it's your definition of a protagonist, but because um, you just follow these horrible people for an entire length of a movie. And um, I actually like movies like that. Um, and I mean, following an antagonist, a, a, a horribly flawed person rather than following some sort of heroic person or a person who's just, is not heroic at first, but then becomes heroic. And then there's a happy ending. And I mean, I like, I like movies that are like that, but I, but movies where it just follows somebody who's awful and despicable and just has no, is never redeemed. I I like movies like that. <laughs> There's a lot of really good ones. I mean, um, uh, you know, uh, most Rob Zombie movies are like that, and most people don't like Rob Zombie, so that's probably not the best example. But I like Rob Zombie movies, even his Halloween movies. But he builds a world where you kind of start to like the characters you like their quirkiness you um get kind of a you know you get kind of a stockholm syndrome sort of thing going on and i like that a a director can can do that to you you know and i think especially with movies like devil's rejects uh rob zombie does a very good job at that and um uh, I'm looking forward to his Monsters movie. <laughs> and I, you know, and I'm a fan of the Monsters. Um, I grew up watching the Monsters. I grew up watching a lot of Nick at Night and a lot of reruns on TV, and the Monsters was definitely one of them. And um, the Monsters is actually really, it's a very positive TV show. Like, um, there's a lot of positive lessons in the monsters um like okay and i like tv shows that are like that that kind of teach you a little uh moral lesson 
but it, it it's wrapped up in this like big story of you know weird weirdness weird characters weird settings like star trek is like that um there's always some sort of like moral um of some sort of moral puzzle that needs to be ironed out through the characters and the you know during the story um but the monsters was very much like that too in that um the okay so the monsters was it they live at they live on Mockingbird Lane in their haunted house. And let's see, there's Herman Munster, who's he's basically a Frankenstein's monster. There's Lily Munster, who's like a vampire lady. Right? Is that right? She's like a vampire lady. Um, and then there's Grandpa Munster, who's like he's Dracula. That's his character. He's Dracula. And then there's their son, Eddie Munster, who's half uh, werewolf? I don't know if he's half werewolf or full werewolf, but he's basically a werewolf boy. And they're, let's see, Lily Munster's niece named Marilyn, who looks like, guess who, not Marilyn Manson, but Marilyn Monroe, is this very beautiful, blonde, you know, very stereotypical, normal-looking girl. And the Munsters always... Uh, Lily and Herman would always have these sort of moments where they would always be very encouraging and positive uh, to Marilyn. And because in their eyes, Marilyn is, like, ugly, even because they're monsters. So the monsters, the, the monster monsters, they think that they're really great looking. Like they don't see themselves as monsters. They see themselves as, you know, very attractive. And the normal looking Marilyn, who's very attractive, they see her as ugly and see that, that um, other people are going to judge her based on how she looks and treat her differently. When in reality, everyone is going to think she's hot and every guy at school is going to be all over her. And um, But there's always these little moments where Herman would have these really positive talks with Marilyn about, uh, you know, it's not, it's not what you look like. It's not what your outer appearance. It's what inside. It's what's inside that matters. And if you can make that good within you come out, and people could see that you, you're gonna you're gonna create a more positive world, and people will see see you for who you are, and not from what you look like. So there, and the other than that, the musters is ridiculous. <laughs> it's just it's like a it's like spooky married with children. You know, it's it's, and it wasn't even. I don't even think it was a TV show for that long. I don't think I should have probably looked that up, but I'm not going to do it right now. Anyways, point being, I, I totally got off on a fucking monsters tangent, but, uh, Rob zombie movies, Rob zombie has, uh, reprehensible characters in his movies that he kind of, 
wraps in this very candy coated shell so that you, you you like them you start to start to like Captain Spaulding and Otis Driftwood and all the all these despicable characters uh and um I do like movies like that I like like movies like Bad Lieutenants the original Bad Lieutenants with Harvey Keitel like that movie's fantastic I I love that movie um uh, Bad Lieutenant, uh, directed by Abel Ferrara, who, you know, I, I dig that dude stuff too, like Miss 45 and Driller Killer. Even his remake of um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I like that. And, you know, Bad Lieutenant was great. I even like the, uh, was it, was it Werner Herzog <laughs> did a remake? It's not even a remake. Well, I guess it is a remake. It's not a sequel. It's a remake of Bad Lieutenant, um... Bad Lieutenant Port of Call with Nicolas Cage. And even that movie I like, even though it's fucking weird and a lot of it doesn't make any sense, but it's just it's just weird and crazy and I just like that. And the main character is like a total fucking scumbag, but I'm into it. And especially the the original Bad Lieutenant, I'm really into it and the whole movie's from his perspective. It's just following him around. And he's deeply flawed and he doesn't have some sort of story arc where he becomes a better person by the end of the movie. Like, at all. <laughs> he's, he gets arguably worse as uh, as the movie goes on. But it's stylized in such a way in this sort of, I don't know. I don't I don't think saying bad lieutenant is, there's moments of uh, David Lynchian feel to it. But, you know, I, I, I don't know why. I don't know why when I think of bad lieutenant, I get like blue velvet vibes a little bit. I don't know. I don't know, I think in my mind I draw parallels between the Frank Booth, Dennis Hopper character in Blue Velvet and the Bad Lieutenant from Bad Lieutenant, the Harvey Keitel character. I don't know, there's a similarity between those two characters that I find fascinating. And I think Bad Lieutenant came... It was at least shot in the same year as uh, Reservoir Dogs. So that gives you an idea of how fucking intense Herbie Keitel must be. You do Reservoir Dogs and Bad Lieutenant basically back to back. Like that's a that's a hell of a work year right there. But movies like going back to August Underground, you just, you are... As soon as the movie starts, you are trapped with these monsters who kill and rape and torture people, and you can't escape it until they decide when it ends. I mean, there's moments of levity in those movies, too. And um, a lot of people hate the August Underground movies, and it's completely, I understand why. But... I don't know, moments of levity in movies that are really intense, dramatic, and violent. 
I don't know. Those moments always really stick out to me and they come off funnier. I don't know. They stick with me. Like Goodfellas is like that. Goodfellas is filled with murder. (laughs) Murder and violence and people fucking yelling at each other and uh, doing cocaine and there's just constant craziness but the movie's really funny goodfellas is hilarious um so i mean i find bad lieutenant funny so i don't you know (laughs) i think if people saw movies like that and looked for the humor in it and kind of loosened up a little bit and what wasn't so uh tight-assed about seeing violence like they would see the the bigger picture the bigger joke really you know um the absurdity being able to laugh at the absurd spectacle like being able to laugh at the absurd spectacle of like the devil's rejects even though there's gnarly scenes in there what some people would call pretty gnarly i think the moments where things are funny, I think, really help lighten up the load of watching all these intense scenes. And that that's not... I don't think that across the board. Like, I don't think uh, a Serbian film is hilarious. <laughs> There's parts in it that are just goofy. But just because something's goofy doesn't mean I find it entertainingly funny. I'm just like, okay, that's just goofy for... Or, th- or something just comes off goofy. But it's not, there's no cleverness behind it. I mean, I didn't plan on talking about a Serbian film, but um, but I wouldn't even count a Serbian film in with what I'm talking about because it's a, it's a movie about someone who ends up making high art, quote-unquote, snuff films uh, under the direction of some psycho mastermind guy. It's like, it's, that's, it's not the same thing, you know? If, like, if a Serbian film was a found footage film, like, that could be interesting, Ooh, maybe I don't know. Maybe in a few years, give it a few years. They make re they they do remakes way too early uh, nowadays. Anyway, so maybe we can get a uh, a remake of a Serbian film, and it'll be a found footage film. There we go. You know, get a bigger audience. I don't think the first uh, a Serbian film rubs people the right way. But but again, that's a Serbian film is not like August Underground, where it's specifically from the point of view of the killer like or they made a film in the movie and um i know it's it seems like a similar thing but i to me it's not it's it's a different it's a different thing because the filming of the crime in a serbian film was really just to find ways of shoehorning in um increasingly extremer things 
extreme more extreme scenes um as opposed to well like the i, th- I think one of the more famous ones would be uh the scene from henry portrait of a serial killer from 1986 and there's one scene where the two main characters henry and otis steal a video camera and then use the video camera to later uh they they used it in a home invasion where they killed the whole family killed the whole family and i think raped the mother so they made a video of it, and then there's a scene of them sitting at um, at their apartment just watching it, rewinding it and watching it. It's very, it's a very chilling scene because you're, you're sitting in the room with them. Like, you don't really feel outside looking in. It's like you feel like you're in the room with them, and... And that's that's just one scene from that movie. You know, that movie's not even a found footage film. It's not anything like that. It's, but that one scene alone, I think, added a lot. And it, and it kind of put the idea of, like, death films and snuff films into people's heads. Like, the idea that those things probably exist and, and do. I mean, that's touched on in a really good documentary called, uh, from 2008 called Snuff, a documentary about killing on camera. And the movie goes through, definitionally, what is a snuff film from a legal sense, from a law enforcement sense, what is the difference between a snuff film and movies like Faces of Death or Traces of Death, and... How does depictions of death um, like w- what are the larger implications of videos of of death um, during war? The movie was made in two thousand eight, so they have a whole section talking about um, they briefly sort of breeze right through from like Vietnam to uh, well, the you know the Iraq War, so and in um, Afghanistan, so and there's there's one scene. Then let's see, there's one scene where they talk about the um they talk about Leonard Lake and Charles Ng murders. Leonard Lake and Charles Ng were serial killers in Northern California who would kidnap, torture, and kill people and film uh, many of the... Well, they they would document that process. And... I believe they were referred to as the M Lady tapes. But once once Charles Ng and um Leonard Lake were caught and they weren't caught red-handed trying to kidnap or murder somebody, they were they were caught, I believe, shoplifting. 
And one thing led to another, and they ended up getting their uh, house raided, which was like out in the woods in the middle of nowhere. It was essentially a, a bunker, like an end-of-the-world bunker. Because Leonard Lake was believed that there was going to be an impending nuclear uh, apocalypse, and that was his bunker. And in this house, the when... When the police raided the place, they found uh, a torture chamber, like a soundproof torture chamber where they would uh, torture their victims. They found, um, and they found, well, they found their, their video collection of just hours of footage of verbally torturing their victims and actually killing their victims and you know that's just something that exists out in the world um i know that's there was a documentary about leonard lake's um tapes i haven't seen it but i know that something like that exists i don't know if it's any good or not but um in snuff a documentary about killing on camera they they dive into the Leonard Lake Charles Ng case uh, a little bit, but they they they're pretty thorough for the amount of uh, time they dedicated to it. Oh, what else they talk about? Um, well, uh, let's see. I mean, they talk about what I'm talking about right now. They're talking about how. Um, Death and murder and uh, snuff is depicted in movies. They talk about there's um, one of the guys who worked for the production company for the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie does. He has a couple of um, parts in the documentary where he tells he tells two stories. His name is uh, Mark L. Rosen. And he tells two stories. The first story is about he he discusses this article that was in the London Observer from like the early two thousands, and it's about this Russian individual who, well, he became the producer of. Well, it sounds like hundreds of uh, child pornography uh, movies. And the guy ended up getting caught. And he had a couple of accomplices. Um, but a lot of these movies were made specifically for paying clients who wanted very specific types of movies made. And these Russian fellas would actually make these horrific uh, tapes that depicted child abuse. So the, 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 these three guys, I believe it was three, three, there was three main guys. And then there was like other people involved. There was there, the article itself. And I actually read the article because they only touch on it briefly in the documentary. It's such a small part of the documentary where I actually looked up the entire article and read it. And they there were something like 400, 500, something like that, individuals uh, in Italy who were 
links to this child snuff crime ring. It's insane. And, well, basically, the, these guys ended up um, all getting caught, and uh, they went to prison, and the Russian government had some type of issue with overcrowding in prisons, and I believe, I don't know if it's just two or all three of the guys ended up getting released early through some kind of program through the Russian government about uh, getting people out of jail early because to deal with overcrowding. Where are these guys now? I don't know. Who knows? But that's terrifying. And the documentary itself is not very flashy, actually. If you've ever seen the show I Survived, I Survived is one of the creepiest fucking shows you can ever watch. It's... The budget is, I don't know, it's its probably in the tens of dollars. Uh, what I survived is, is uh, every episode is, is set up like this. They'll have three people, each in uh, telling a story. Each of them has their own story. And they're they're all recorded separately. So the the first person will tell they'll tell the first part of their story, and then and then it'll kind of end on a cliffhanger, and then it'll jump to the second person. The person second person will tell the first part of their story, leave it on a cliffhanger. Then they'll jump to the third person, and they'll tell the first half of their story, and then they'll go kind of round robin. So they'll jump from all three of these people, and you only get. Like a, like a third of their story every um, during the episode. And then they would go to commercial, come back, and then they would tell the second half, go to commercial, come back, tell the third half. So you're just constantly on edge on, at all times. But all of the people's stories in every episode are stories where these people should have probably or could have died. And it's some horrible story. It's people who've been kidnapped and tortured. It's people who've been attacked by animals and left for dead. People have had, like, acid thrown in their faces. People have been shot multiple times by uh, active shooters. It's, it's fucking insane. And, it's, and there's no... And, and the, oh, God. And, and, like, the music to it is insane. It's, like, the most droney crazy just panic inducing music you can hear it's just <laughs> and these people are just telling sort of about i was okay the man threw acid in my face and i could smell my skin melting and then he pulled me out of the car and threw me in the trunk of his uh, car. And then he took me out in the middle of nowhere and told me that I, that he was gonna he was gonna peel all my skin off and then shoot me in the face. Like it's insane. Every episode is like that. And but I mean, in 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 terms of content, uh, I survived is not like uh, snuff a documentary about killing on camera. It's basically just how it looks because a lot of the documentaries just um, uh, people sitting in a dark room 
with like a dark, but like a black void behind them, and they're just talking. And they jump from person to person, and they have people who are filmmakers, they have people who are um, FBI profilers, law enforcement people, people who've had to deal with serial killers and uh, criminal behavior, things like that. And people who are, you know, uh, movie enthusiasts. And it, it, they have a pretty good spectrum of people in the documentary. and But it looks like I survived. Pretty unnerving, actually. Just a person sitting in a dark room, just talking to the camera. Not looking at the camera. I mean, sometimes they look at the camera, but for the most time they're looking just slightly off camera and it's a little unnerving. So you... You feel like you're just staring. You're not just watching. You feel like you're staring at this person. In Snuff, there's uh, the Mark L. Rosen guy who told the uh, Russian child pornography ring story. His second story um, towards the end where he talks, he tells this story about he, it was like the 1970s, I believe, and he tells this story about how he was working for this production company. And it was a production company that it was the same company that was distributing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So it was in the 1970s. And he, um, the, but the, the production company, I believe, also distributed pornography as well. Uh, so he takes a meeting with what he referred to as a Filipino businessman. And he meets the guy at like a hotel bar. And when the guy walked in, he, he, it was like a busy hotel bar, but he realized, he noticed immediately who the guy was when he walked in. He was Filipino gentleman in a suit and he had two huge bodyguards with him. And, he meets the guy, they sit down, and he's the the guy basically wants to pitch a um a movie to him. He wants to he I, I get he has a movie that's already been made, but he wants his company to distribute it. So he takes a meeting with the guy and the guy's like, Okay, um well, do you have the movie on you? And he's and the guy's like, No, but it's up in my hotel room, and he's like, "Okay, let's let's go get it." So the Filipino gentleman takes him up to his hotel room with bodyguards in tow, and uh, when they get to the room, they had to like wait. Once they got in the room, they had to wait for a few minutes because the the video wasn't actually in the room. They're like, "It's like it's coming." So there's like a knock on the door, and. There's like some other dude who brought the video to him so that they didn't want the video in the room, you know, before they were about to show it. They wanted it like they wanted to bring it in like last possible second. So they bring it in. And the way he described it was the video looked like a S&M film, like a BDSM film. Uh, it was man and a woman and they were having anal sex and... At one point, uh, the guy puts a plastic bag over the woman's head, and um, he figured it was sort of a 
um, autoerotic asphyxiation S&M film. And then at one point, the camera zooms in on the woman's face. And she still has a plastic bag on her head. And then the guy who's given her the anal sex reaches around with a buck knife, sticks it in her neck, and slits her throat. And that's the whole movie. And the way he tells the story, he swears it was totally real. It was the 1970s, and special effects like that weren't a thing. Like, they didn't exist. And he what he uh, what he contends is that what the Filipino gentleman was trying to sell him was an actual snuff film. And he ended up he ended up being able to, you know, he ended up leaving the room. He basically told the guy he wasn't interested and, you know, went back to his bosses and was like, what the fuck kind of meeting did you set me up with? And he told his bosses what he saw. And um, after that, he it, they didn't go to the police. They didn't go to the police. They just kind of went on with their lives. And, you know, he doesn't know if anybody ever, if he went, it, he doesn't know if the Filipino guy ended up going to another distributor. He doesn't know if anyone ever bought it. Ever, you know, he didn't know. But his story was that not only has he seen an actual definitional, real, true snuff film, but he's like, you know, they exist. So his two stories between the um, the Russian the Russian story and the uh, Filipino guy story. I mean, the the guy seemed pretty credible, <laughs> but you know, it's a documentary, and who knows the validity of anything, but it made for a pretty good documentary. So I definitely recommend that uh, if anyone wants to kind of, I mean, if you like true crime uh, stuff, you like true crime shows and you want to see a, um, a documentary that's uh, kind of speaking, it's a very specific type of documentary and, but it's, 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 it speaks about a certain topic sort of generally enough where you can kind of get a lot out of the documentary, but you're not bogged down with one story or another. Like the, like the movie, the documentary bounces around quite a bit. It's actually, it's kind of hard to find. It's easy to find on like YouTube, but finding a physical copy of uh, snuff a documentary about killing on camera is, is, it's kind of, it's out of print. It's hard to find. There's like pseudo documentaries. There's, uh, there's one I saw, uh, very recently. Uh, it was called Sandman, but the title is, it looks like it says S and M man. It's like S and then the, and the ampersand sign and then man. So it's Sandman, and um, the movie gets into why it's spelled like that. It's not just spelled like that, like, to be fucking 
obnoxious. But it's a 2006 movie, and Sandman is about, and again, it's another documentary. It's it's like a it's it's a fake documentary, but um, it's just real enough where someone who's the uninitiated would have no idea that it's fake, probably. Um, so Sandman is basically, it's a film about this guy who uh, had a, there was like a peeping Tom in his neighborhood that he grew up in. And I believe the peeping Tom was, uh, well, the peeping Tom was like filming people, was videotaping uh, through people's windows in his neighborhood. And I believe was peeping through his window like his bedroom window. So one day he saw the little red light from the camera and it was like set up outside of his uh, bedroom. And uh, the guy ended up getting caught and, but he never got charged for one reason or another. And the guy ended up getting off because he didn't, besides invading people's privacy, it's not like he was murdering anybody. He was just, Stand, he was just some weird voyeur guy who was just looking through people's windows and filming it. Um, but in the documentary, he, the guy got off and just went back to his normal life living in the neighborhood. So that's kind of creepy. And so the, the main, the documentarian in, uh, in Sandman was he initially wanted to he got some money from a studio to make a movie about the peeping tom story and he wanted to get the actual peeping tom guy to be in the documentary but he couldn't get the guy um to agree to be in the movie so he was kind of hitting a dead end on getting the documentary made and in the meantime he started looking at he tried to he tried to figure out a way to basically salvage the budget that he had and basically salvage the project because it didn't look like he was going to be able to do the documentary that he wanted so he started talking to other filmmakers who made more um, underground uh, more extreme films. He ends up talking to Fred Vogel from the August Underground films. Uh, he talked to uh, Bill Zebub, who makes really low budgets, kind of softcore, naked chick, kind of, kind of shitty horror movies. And does he talk to he talks to a lady who's like a doctor i don't know if she's like a psychiatrist but she she wrote a book about basically about the psychology of uh, violent film and how it translates to uh real life violence so they so they actually had actual they had actual real people but uh they're interviewed in a way where they don't. They don't know. I don't know if they know they're actually in, like what the documentary is actually really about. I don't know at what point 
that they were told like, oh, this is a fake documentary. But all of the parts that the that those people have, all the interviews they do are like real. Like they they're actually talking about their movies. They're talking about their process of making movies, how it's received by audiences and things like that. But um, what they the what's slick about the documentary is they slide in this other guy named Eric, and Eric is also he a low-budget independent filmmaker and um the main filmmaker goes out to the uh chiller i think it's just called the chiller theater expo it's it's a it's like a horror uh sci-fi convention um in new jersey and i i think it's every year or every other year and i actually want to go uh after seeing the documentary i was like I want to go to that. It looks fun. Um, they have a they have a convention coming up in um, the end of October of 2021. So you know, if you're in that area that might, and you're into horror conventions, that looks like a pretty good one, actually. So in in the movie, the guy goes to uh, the convention and he meets this guy who's selling, he doesn't even have a booth. He just has, like, a messenger bag with a sign on it, and it says Sandman on it. And it's spelled like how the movie's spelled, like S, the ampersand sign, and then man. It's all, like, one word. And he uh, gets a copy of uh, his Sandman movies. And the Sandman, the Sandman movies are, like, a series of films that this guy makes where he finds a woman, he stalks her, follows her around, you know, from uh, her, you know, it's, it's, we'll follow her around, like leaving her house, going to work, you know, taking the, taking the subway, uh, her just walking down the street and then eventually captures and kills her. And, the guy who makes the the Sandman movies is the killer in the Sandman movies. So kind of like Fred Vogel in the August Underground films where he plays the main killer, this Eric dude also is the killer in his movies. The guy who's making the documentary is kind of starts to he you know he has all these other people he's talking to and every once in a while they'll kind of touch on he's still trying to make his documentary about the peeping tom guy but he keeps going back to this guy who made these sandman movies cuz it's um he made a bunch of them and every one of them is kind of the same format and he sits down and has an interview with the guy and he's like well how do you make your sandman movies and he's like First, I uh, find a woman, and I, and I follow her around, and I film her. And she doesn't know she's being followed. I just follow her and film her. And guy making the documentary is like, that's kind of weird. <laughs> like, they don't... So you get all this footage of them before they even know they're going to be in the movie. And, and the guy's like, yeah. And then eventually I approach them, and I tell them my idea for the movie, and... um they always say yes. So I get these women to 
uh, be in my movie where I already have all the footage of me just stalking them. But then uh, once they agree to be in the movie, then I'll have a scene where uh, I take them out in the middle of nowhere and like strangle them or, you know, and as the movies go on, they get more extreme. And the documentary documentary guys are just like, that's fascinating. Like it's so odd that you would just essentially stalk. You'd pick a woman out, stalk her, and not knowing if she would agree to even be in your movie, you know, she could go to the police. You know, you're <laughs> at that point you're stalking people and filming them. And he's like, No, I mean, you know, you You'd be surprised. They're very receptive. You know, I, I already have the footage of them going through their daily lives. And um, by the time I approach them, they usually will say yes. And then we'll end up making the rest of the movie where my killer character, not me, but my killer character, will um, end up uh, capturing and killing the woman. And that's basically the whole Sandman series and it's shot from a first person point of view. It's from the point of view of the killer behind the camera and the guy making the documentary is like, fuck it's Like that's, that's fucking weird, man. Like the guy has just been making these indie films and, um, you know, at one point he's like, well, where are all these actresses? Like, could I talk to one of them, you know, interview them for the documentary? And he's like, no, no, they, they, I mean, you, you know, they, you probably, he's like, I don't keep in touch with them. So I don't even know where they would even be. And he's like, oh, that's weird. And he's, he's like, I mean, are you working on a new, like a new movie now? And he's like, yeah, he's like, I'm working on a few. And, um, he's like, well, can I talk to one of those women? And he's like. Um, well, you know, tell you what, how about you give me your information and I'll pass it on to the actresses. And if they want to call you, they can call you if, you know, it's up to them. So, you know, creepy as hell, right? So, uh, long story short, and, um, I'm not one for telling people spoilers, but, uh, for the sake of you, I'm going to say, you know, this entire this entire show is spoilers. I personally don't care about spoilers, really. I think I'm the only person in the world who, at least I feel like I don't care if think, if movies get spoiled because I grew up being told how, you know, a lot of movies end and I watch them and they're still good despite people spoiling it for me. So I find if a movie's good, it'll be good no matter what. Um, I mean, I liked The Sixth Sense and some bunch of people spoiled that fucking movie for me but i saw it anyway and i was like oh that's pretty good it's pretty good anyways um so basically uh sandman ends with the guy the 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 erica guy who's makes all the sandman movies him and the um guy who's making the documentary basically get into an argument at one point because the Eric guy has been interviewed a bunch of times and he's not very forthcoming about exactly how his movies are made. And, uh, you know, they get into an argument and 
basically he's just like, you know what? I don't want you to use any footage of me in your documentary. The guy's like, hey man, you already signed, you already signed a consent form saying that I can. He's like, I mean, I won't use anything from this point on, but you know, the guy's like, you know what? I don't even want to be in your documentary. Okay. I, you know, I answer your questions and it's not good enough for you. So, you know what? I, I don't, I don't want you using my likeness or whatever. So the guy's like, whatever. But basically, long story short, some time goes by, and the Eric sends the director his most recent entry into the Sandman series. And when he goes to watch it, the woman that uh, is in, who's the victim in this series, is his girlfriend so he's watching all this footage of him and his girlfriend being stalked by this guy being followed around them going on dates them going to the store together you know them leaving going to and from their house and then it cuts to his girlfriend being abducted and then killed and that's how the documentary ends you know the the guy's own girl the, the director's girlfriend ends up becoming a victim of the the Sandman killer guy who was not making low-budget, found-footage serial killer movies. He was actually making snuff films and selling them. But the guy, I mean, the movie's so low-budget, but they completely, I think the guy pulled it off. I thought it was fairly clever little movie. But it's a pseudo-documentary, but... Um, you know, it's, you know, who doesn't like a good pseudo documentary? Who doesn't like best in show? Or this is Spinal Tap. <laughs> well, actually, here you go. Here you go. Here's a, a melding of those two worlds. Okay. Uh, like fake documentary mixed with some humor but also mixed with murder. <laughs> there was a also 2006 movie called Behind the Mask, the, the Rise of Leslie Vernon. And it's a movie about this guy named Leslie Vernon, and he's followed by a documentary crew, kind of like Man Bites Dog. Actually, I'll talk about Man Bites Dog in a minute, but... Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Uh, it's about this guy, Leslie Vernon, and he he's an aspiring serial killer. But uh, he realizes that every serial killer has to kind of have their own um, flair, their own way they commit their crimes to uh, differentiate themselves from other killers. And what Leslie Vernon does is he constructs situations that are like a slasher horror movie so that he can kill his victims in a way that would be depicted in a slasher film. And he himself has created his own uh, character. Like he wears like a fucking goofy mask and has like a, an outfit and... And he thinks of ways to make the, the, the kills like in a slasher film. And 
he goes into things like when like the killer is chasing a girl through the woods. Okay, he's chasing a woman through the woods and inevitably the woman is going to trip and fall cuz that's just the trope, right? That's what happens. But he brings up, you know when you watch a movie and the victim is always running as fast as they can through the woods, but the killer is slowly walking behind them, slowly pursuing them, but somehow is able to catch up to them. He's like, well, I wanted to do that. He's like, but I'm not going to walk after someone who's running. I'll never catch up to him. So he's like, I make them, like, I let them know that I'm walking after them, but when they're not looking, I'll sprint. So there's a whole montage of him staying like working out and staying in shape he's like you know you gotta be gotta be in shape to do this uh sort of thing so there's like a little training montage of him figuring out all these ways to kill his victims in the most horror movie way possible um like he lures a bunch of people to this like house in the middle of nowhere and he has like trap doors and stuff where he's like, you know, you know, in the movie where someone will be walking down a hallway and then all of a sudden the killer just appears behind him. It's like, where do they come from? He's like, well, I've solved that problem. I've made uh, trap doors in the house so I can sneak up behind people and kill them and uh, make, you know, drag their bodies into the wall and make them disappear. And it'll make it seem like a real horror movie. The documentary film, there's a documentary film crew in the movie. It's he's. He himself is not the one doing the filming. He has like a film crew. <laughs> so they So this film crew are sort of accomplices, but he trusts that they that they'll I don't know, it's weird. It's like how do you trust these people to not reveal your crime, but at the same time you know that they're documenting this. It's it's silly and there's a lot of suspension of disbelief, but not at at no time do you watch it and think, oh, I wonder if this is real. Is this real? Is Leslie Vernon a real killer? Like You never think that at any point. It's just shot that way, and it's, it's pretty funny. It's enjoyable. If you, like, if you like horror movies, if you like what we do in the shadows, I think you'll like the Behind the Mask, Rise of Leslie Vernon. Um, or maybe not, I don't know, but I haven't really kept up with what we do in the shadows, the actual series, but the actual movie, I've seen that. And I thought that was really funny. I thought that was, that yeah, was cute. Yeah. I want to get back to, um, I brought a, a man bites dog. Uh, that also came out, came out the same year. Actually, like ninety two was that was a good year for a lot of movies. Uh, Man bikes dog, the Belgium film, and it's shot in black and white, and it and it's about a documentary film crew that's following this killer around, and he's actually very charismatic. Like you actually like the guy, uh, the guy, the Leslie Vernon character in Behind the Mask. Like he's likable. Like, you like him. He's charming, he's funny, and 
you you like him, but his his intentions are bad. And uh, Man Bites Dog, I think, is a more extreme in every way version of of that. Uh, the main the main killer. This if this documentary film killer is f- uh, following the serial killer around, and you know what he looks like? He looks, and for the longest time, I couldn't. I'm like, who does that guy look like? And man bites dog. What does he look? Who he looks like? Somebody. He and I, and I figured it out. Okay, in Night of the Living Dead, the first like zombie ghoul guy in the cemetery that attacks Barbara and Johnny. And if you haven't seen Night of the Living Dead, fuck, I don't know. I feel bad for you. Uh, everyone should see Night of the Living Dead. It's a uh, no, like no one owns it. It's a public domain movie, and it's it's great. Everyone should see that. And Halloween, October's coming up. Halloween's coming up. Everyone should watch a couple of scary movies. Watch Night of the Living Dead. It's great. Yeah, the guy, the killer from Man Bikes Dog looks like the first zombie that you see in Night of the Living Dead that attacks Barbara and Johnny in the cemetery. That's what he looks like. Anyways, Man Bites Dog is. The main character is, he's funny, he's charming, uh, he's really, he's, he's, he's a good protagonist. The problem is, he's a vicious serial killer, a dangerous, violent rapist, <laughs> and he kills a lot a lot. Like, there's this... Every time he kills somebody, he always wraps their body up in, like, a carpet or a blanket or something and dumps their body into this sort of... Uh, I don't know what the hell you would call it. I don't want to say it's like a like a river, but it's kind of like this weird man-made, like, canal thing. And he dumps that... But, I mean, there's... There's, like, a little montage where it just shows him killing a bunch of people... And then dumping their bodies. And he fucking throws so many goddamn bodies into this fucking canal that it, it actually is uh, funny. <laughs> it's actually, it's kind of, it's just the absurdity uh, is, is quite humorous. But for as, as silly as the movie is, it's the... Horrific, violent elements are very horrific and very violent. And the the main killer is he goes from being the most upbeat, friendly, charming guy to an absolute monster in the blink of an eye. So, I mean, I think his name is Ben. The killer's name is Ben and... Yeah, man bites dog, and it's it's another one of those situations where he has a documentary film crew, and the documentary film crew kind of like becomes the like they become like buddies with him, where they initially they're just sort of following him around, asking him questions. They follow him around when he's killing people, disposing of bodies, like every every part of the process. They're just they're watching, they're filming it. 
and eventually they uh, end up participating in a lot of these crimes. So it's the it's it's a mess, but the movie itself is really interesting. And and uh, again, again, spoilers for you know, but watch watch it anyway. Man's Man Bites Dog is fascinating movie. At one point, they actually end up running into another film crew who's following another serial killer. Like, it's very brief. And, and, and Ben, I think, ends up killing the other film crew. It's, it's very funny. You follow this despicable person around for an entire length of a film, and you just watch them commit crimes. It's not like they get really much... Not even so much like they get a come up it's at the end or anything like that, or they see the error of their ways or they sacrifice themselves to redeem themselves later or anything like that. It's just you just follow this horrible person for ninety minutes and then the movie ends. And that sounds like a like it's, that sounds like a complete waste of time to even spend your time watching something like that. But if you're able to make something like that entertaining, like that's that's talent, as far as I'm concerned. That's that's hard to do. That's hard to pull off. So yeah, uh, man, man bites dog. Definitely, definitely check that out if you get a chance. I think it's in the Criterion Collection. For God's sakes, I could be wrong about that. <laughs> but I think it's in the Criterion Collection, so it's it's got to be worth at least something. Let's see what... Oh, you know what else is in the Criterion Collection? I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong, I but I think. A movie for also from 92 called Benny's Video. And it's a Austrian-Swiss movie. And I think everyone in the movie is speaking German, so... I think. I don't know. I get all my European accents mixed up. But anyways, the it uh Benny's video stars if you've ever seen what is it? 1997 Funny Games. Like one of the main home invader kids from Funny Games is in he's Benny in Benny's videos. In Benny's video. Um but in Benny's video he's younger. He's he's supposed to be fourteen in the movie, so by the time he does funny games, he's quite a few years older. But Benny's video is about this kid who has very career oriented parents who have they have money. And they're very much into, they very much indulge and spoil their, their one and only son, uh, Benny. And Benny's really into uh, filming things. He's into cameras and he's into um, documenting things through video. And... The opening of the movie, there's a, a scene that's from the perspective of Benny's video camera. So it has a very kind of 
broken down video quality to it, but it's, um, you find out that what you're watching is from his point of view, from his video camera, and it's um, a pig being killed, um, presumably for for consumption. It, it's like at his family. If you find out it's at his family's, um, his family has a farm. Um, they live in the city. They live in a city. They don't actually live on a farm, but he has family members that have a farm, and um. They were slaughtering a pig for meat, and he watches the process of them killing the pig, and they use one of those, like, bolt air gun type of deals. Like, not quite the uh, Anton Chigurh bolt gun from uh, No Country for Old Men. Not quite something like that, but the thing actually kind of looks like a lightsaber. And then you would, from what it looks like, you would load a small caliber round into the bottom of the thing. And you would put this thing against the pig's head and it would fire the round into the brain and kill the kill the pig. So... That's the beginning of the movie. So there's already like graphic animal death in the movie to begin with. So you're already put on edge and you can hear the pig squealing. And that's a that's a big part of the movie actually is like the sound of things. It's a if you're like a weird ASMR weirdo, you would probably really like uh Benny's video. It also there's a lot of moments of just like long extended shots of things and it's not it's not a very loud movie it's just it's very quiet and it it wants you to just really look at the screen and just look at the movie and take it in and there's and they'll they'll present some information they'll present a scene and then they'll have like a um an amount of time where there's not a lot going on and it gives you time to kind of absorb and think about what you just saw and how that's going to move forward. If that makes sense. And so Benny ends up stealing the air gun. I'm just going to call it a lightsaber. He ends up stealing the lightsaber from his I'm I'm guessing I think it's his uncle's farm uh on his dad's side ends up stealing the air gun thing and keeps it in the drawer in his desk at home in his bedroom and Benny constantly is filming um Outside of his, his family lives in like a large apartment complex, like a large building. Uh, and they live in a, like a, what it looks like a two bedroom apartment, but very nice, like very modern, um, nice. So even by today's standards, if I went into somebody's place and they had the apartment from Benny's video, I would, I would be, I'd be impressed. So, uh, but he's always 
he's always filming. He has a he has a a camera that just looks outside of his window, and they live on a fairly high floor of this building. So the shot is from his window, looking down into the street, and it's like a city street. So there's constant flow of traffic and stores and things like that. And he has a monitor he, he, that's just showing what's going on in real time all the time, just sitting on a shelf. So one day he notices that there's this girl uh, standing out in front of a video store that's outside of the building and invites her up to his place. His parents are out of town, invites her up, and there's this long kind of tension. This Like the scene is long enough where you don't know if there's going to be some sort of like weird sexual thing about to happen which is uncomfortable because these are like young teenagers you know it's not like they're 18 they're like 13 14 years old so there's this sort of you don't know what Benny's intentions are with this girl you don't know if he's just genuinely looking for a friend because he seems to be somewhat of a loner even though in the movie he has he does have friends but it but he does seem to really value his alone time in his room because his room's set up crazy he's got all this like camera equipment and computer equipment and stuff so you can tell that he really likes to spend a lot of time at home like there's a scene of him like drafting, like he's, like he's doing like complex schematics of whatever, and so he's, in a way, he's kind of a loner. He's kind of in his own mind a lot, and he invites this girl up, and one thing leads to another. He ends up showing her the, the air gun, the lightsaber, and. The movie is a l- kind of ambiguous about it, but he ends up shooting the girl in the sort of stomach, chest, torso area. And you see it. First, you, you, you don't quite see everything that happens. You see it sort of from their point of view. He ends up shooting her in the stomach and she's on the ground and she's crying and screaming and he's trying to get her to stop. And he ends up running over to his desk and reloading the thing with another round and shoots her again. And she stops moving. She stops screaming. So he killed her. And having set up the pig scene in the beginning of the movie you know that he probably shot her in the head and you know that one shot is all it takes. So, uh, but then it shows it again, but from the perspective of a camera he has in his room. So you see it through like a monitor. You see the scene again, but from the angle of a camera in his room, but what the monitor in his room saw. So it's like, you're looking at a screen so the the video itself he he has a murder on on tape, and then there's enough scenes that go by where 
you like there's a scene after he kills her where he's basically uh, he gets a phone call from one of his friends and he goes out to like a concert with his friends and spends night at his house. His parents are still out of town, so you're you have enough time to have a couple more scenes where you can kind of just sit there and just think about what happened, and then think about what, like what is going through this kid's mind and when when is his parents coming back? You know, there's you have a lot of time to kind of kind of put all these map out the the story so far in your head pretty clearly and then he comes home and his parents are home when his parents come home he uh, he shows them the tape which you don't expect like there's nothing to indicate that um that would happen i mean they kind of hint like maybe he got rid of the body but he didn't like he literally kills this girl and then goes out with his friends. And when his parents come back, he's like, I want to show you this video. And it's a video of him killing this girl. So the parents are like, okay, the mom and dad like sit down in the kitchen and they're like, okay, we need to figure out what we're going to do here. Cause we like, here's our options. We can go to the police and because Benny is a minor, they may take it easy on him. You know, maybe he won't do a ton of jail time. He probably won't go to, like, an adult prison. Um, but he'll definitely get incarcerated. Because it's not like it was an accident. Like, he, re- he reloaded the gun, or the he reloaded the lightsaber, and fucking shot her multiple times until she died. So if they turn him in, then they're going to have to turn in the video as well. You know, and um, also this girl's body is like in their house, like stashed away. So the his parents are sitting there kind of going through their options. Like we can turn him in, turn him in with the video and, you know, he'll probably, he'll, Definitely get put away. Best case scenario, maybe he goes to some mental, um, some mental hospital, and eventually he'll get out. But at the same time, the parents worry about what will happen to them. Like they were out of town, they they were worried about the perception of them neglecting their child and then their child ended up killing someone in their own house. So, and also they're, you know, they talk about like, okay, well, once he gets out of jail, even, you know, he's not going to have much, any much career prospects, which is like, I don't know who even thinks about that, but they're like, well, if he goes to prison for killing somebody, by the time he gets out, he'll probably just barely be an adult and it's not like he can get a job anywhere. So there, our second option is what if we, uh, what if we cover this up basically? So they sit down with Benny and they're they, they like, did you know the girl? He's like, no. Did he go? Did she go to your school? He's like, no. Did anyone see you guys together? He's like, no. Um, 
basically the basically the way things worked out was no one would probably suspect it was another child that killed this girl also uh there didn't seem to be any witnesses to this girl going to Benny's house. So the dad and mom are like, okay, well, what if we took the body out to the farm and burned it until there's nothing left? Then there's no, and then, you know, destroy the tape. And then there's no evidence that anything ever took place. It's like just all, you know, all the authorities have is some girl went missing and no one knows what happened to her. Um, but what they end up deciding on is, okay, uh, they end up, the dad's like, okay, I'm going to, uh, chop up the body into tiny pieces and basically like dump it down the sink or down the toilet or some shit. And he's like, it's going to take time and I got to do it carefully so it doesn't clog up the pipes and doesn't arise suspicion but i have to do it quickly because at that point the body's already been dead for like a couple of days so he what was it the parents decide okay we're gonna tell benny's school that some bullshit story about his grandmother dying and his grandmother moved to egypt and they have to go to Egypt to, you know, recover the body and have a funeral and all this shit. So they, they come up with this cover story and then Benny and his mom goes to Egypt. So there's this whole part of the movie where Benny and his mom go to Egypt. And they take tours and they go swimming in the Nile and they just are having like a a son and mom getaway and during all this like you don't see you don't you don't know what the dad's doing like they don't cut back to what he's doing you just all you know is he's probably chopping up some kid's body and dumping it down uh the fucking uh down the sink (laughs) like that's that's all you know yeah but you don't actually see it so and the only evidence that any of this ever took place was uh, Benny's video of him killing the girl. So, whatchamacallit. So, eventually, uh, Benny and his mom go back to Egypt. They're gone for like a week. And when they come back, the dad, you know, basically is like, I took care of everything. You don't have to be afraid anymore. And that's like the extent of the conversation when they come back. And, and spoilers again, without warning, the movie just cuts to Benny in a room talking to a police officer. And he is explaining how his parents 
kidnapped and murdered a girl. A girl he doesn't know, that he's never seen before, but he has a video of them discussing. Okay, so the scene... Okay, let me go back real quick. So the scene where um, after Benny shows them the, the murder video... There's the scene in the kitchen where his mom and dad are talking about their options. Like, what do we do here? So, unbeknownst to them, Benny videotaped the that conversation. And in the conversation, there's no mention of a video at all. So, at, so Benny gave the police that video. And that video doesn't explain that they're like Benny killed anybody or that there's a video of any kind of crime. Like that conversation is specifically his parents talking about a dead girl that his dad plans on making the body disappear. So what you later find out is that Benny went to the cops and told him that his parents murdered a girl and he has video proof of it. And the original video of Benny killing the girl, he taped over when him and his mom went to Egypt. Because most a lot of the footage from all the scenes of them in Egypt... Um, is through the perspective of Benny's video camera. So at no time are you thinking like, oh, Benny's taping over the murder tape. But you find out at the end he's he's snitched out his parents, framed them for the murder with video evidence, and then taped over the actual evidence. And at the end, his parents end up going to fucking prison for killing the girl and not him. And it's fucked up. <laughs> it's so fucked up, but it's, uh, yeah, I love it. I, the, the movie's great. The movie looks great. It's very, uh, it's a, it's a wonderful, uh, you know what it's like? Uh, there are, there's videos on YouTube of, there's a few people who do it, but there's like one guy in particular I follow on YouTube who uh, he has like a really good camera with like a steady, steady cam. And he will walk through cities in Japan. There's no music. He doesn't narrate it. There's no voiceover or anything. It's just him walking through Japan. And he, he, there's ones in Tokyo and Kyoto. And it, it's beautiful. You get to see... Japan and, and the cities there look awesome and even walks through like some of the suburbs and stuff and even the suburbs look super cool so but it's really relaxing because it's it's usually fairly quiet you just kind of hear the ambient sound of people walking cars going by uh, he even does ones that are at night um, when it's raining <laughs> it's, it's incredibly relaxing but that's what Benny's video is like it's all the sounds of everything are like turned up and I mean there's scenes of people like eating which sounds terrible and is horrible to listen to 
but even the sounds of people just having like having dinner is relaxing. The movie's very quiet. Um but but yeah, I think it takes the uh murder murder on film, death on film um to another place that's less loud and obnoxious. You know, like a lot of other found footage movies tend to be I mean this is the there's this sort of idea of filming murder and I mean that's in a lot of things right it's you know there's uh what was it there's the video violence series which is a shot on video which is its own genre onto itself Shot on video movie. There's and there's a part one and a part two, and basically it's the premise is this guy and his wife move to this small town from New York, and open a video store. And it's in the eighties, so it makes sense. Everyone he notices everyone in town is just obsessed with eighties slasher and horror movies, and. Basically, what's going on is the entire town is um, a bunch of... They're all conspiring together to make snuff films and rent them out at the local video store. (laughs) So, it's pretty silly. But the uh, gore effects, if you're into um, good, old-fashioned, shot-in-camera special effects, uh, video violence is fun. You know, the list goes on of movies that uh, depict or are documenting murderers. Like One can argue, argue Natural Born Killers is like that, but argue, Natural Born Killers is um, not the, the same thing. You know, it's it's not, it doesn't have that, doesn't have that level of meta quality uh, because really it's the, the movie is about how the media sensationalizes violence and it's it's a very 90s movie natural born killers uh, not just the way it looks because it looks great natural born killers is a fucking beautiful movie and it's the cast is awesome and it's shot in a really unique way but the whole tone of it is these two people who were raised on television and neglected by their actual parents grow up to be mass murderers and the coverage of their crimes is sensationalized to a point where they become celebrities like the Kardashians. They have obsessed screaming crowds of fans. But it's, you know, it's it's not the same thing. But it is very entertaining. You know, and it's not uh, you know, and it's all these movies are great. I mean, they're they're definitely dark and some of them are a little too much for some people and that's fine. Like I don't like I've watched a lot of really horrible things. Uh, a lot of real horrible things and 
I'm not saying that to sound fucking cool or anything like that. Like I just happened to have seen a lot of horrible, disturbing uh, things, but um, I'm I'm still completely um, sickened by them. Com- totally. Like I don't I don't find them funny or cool, um, but I find them fascinating. I think that's why I prefer the more film depictions because. I know it's not real and to be able to get that kind of reaction out of a viewer, I find to be very, uh, I appreciate the talent it takes to do that. It's like a good comedy. It's, it's hard to make people laugh and to actually make something where you're just sitting there laughing is to make something where that's supposed to be funny, knowing that an audience, it won't even be in front of an audience for like another year. And, you know, like that's, that takes a lot of talent and I respect that a lot. And I feel the same way with like some of these movies because they, they endure. They, they endure in a way that comedies don't endure. A lot of comedies just don't last. They don't stand up to time. You know, they just become less funny as time goes on. But some of these movies that deal with more uh, darker subjects, I find that that kind of humor stands up um, quite a bit better because the humor is sort of based in... Uh, it's sort of framed in this... Uh, it's framed in, in like inside of an atrocity as opposed to pratfall humor or you know a college silly boner comedy or something something that just doesn't age that great but some of these movies I I think age very well Um, there's one from Austria there's a 1983 movie called Angst or Angst tomato tomato but uh Angst is about a serial killer who gets recently released from prison and he looks pretty normal, which I think is a, it's a good start. You, you know, you don't want some frothing at the mouth, like Rob Zombie caricature looking person. Like, I think it's, it's pretty good when the person looks pretty normal. But right off the bat, you already have kind of weird vibes off the guy. So he gets released from prison. And as the movie goes on, you realize how fucking crazy this guy actually is. Because he immediately starts killing again. The movie depicts... It's incredibly violent. It's... Um, it's there's no found footage element to it. It's... This movie's more of like watching watching The Wrestler with Mickey Rourke where the camera is following the main character the whole time. Like it's it's like you're right behind him. You're following everything he does and it's very brutal. It's very violent, chaotic movie, but it's really good. Actually, and I looked this up uh yesterday. I was I was discussing Onks with somebody. You know, Onks has like 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. And has 
something like a 75, 76% audience score. And I just found that really interesting. Because <laughs> the movies, that it's the type of movie I think, you know, is it's so violent and crazy. Uh, I wouldn't expect that out of Rotten Tomatoes or the audience score, but uh, that I was pleasantly surprised. And the movie's actually shot very well. Like, it's not some cheap piece of shit movie. Like, it's actually very thoughtfully made. Um, and, I mean, it's 1983, so, and I did read an interview with uh, Gaspar Noe, the guy who did um, Irreversible and Into the Void. and Oh, one of his early movies, fucking I Stand Alone? Oh, shit. Well, besides, I actually own Irreversible, but it's actually my wife's copy. <laughs> so It's not really mine, but it's, 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 inter, it's inside of my collection. Um, uh, I stand alone is is great. Like Gaspar Noe is very good at like pushing fucking buttons and presenting really uh, uncomfortable material, but having um, a lot of style and having a uh, a real slickness to his movies, um, and not like in a a Serbian film way where it's really where it's kind of like style over substance. It's like his movies have substance. They you have to kind of think when he watches movies. But uh, I Stand Alone's good. Like I I would go back and watch that now, especially with like how the economy is and how um, the state of the world is. Because there's it's a it's about a guy who's um, goes off the deep end and his you know his he's kind of an older guy and his his work is put into uncertainty and. Um, He's got a pregnant wife at home and stuff, and there's just, it's a very tense movie. It's a very tense, hopeless feeling type movie, um, but it's but it's done very well. Um, oh, where was I? <laughs> yeah, uh, Gaspar Noe, uh, I believe, it might have been an interview with uh, Criterion, like the website for the Criterion Collection. I think he um, did an interview. I could be wrong. But it was an interview where he was talking about, like, the movies that influenced him the most. Um, and uh, I think Angst was on that list. If I'm wrong about that, uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, but I'm pretty sure uh, Angst is one of the movies that he cites as one of a huge influence on him. And then there's stuff on there like uh, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and shit like that. But yeah, if you get a chance to watch Angst, it's got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's pretty cool. (laughs) But anyways, that's all I have for today. If you've made it this far, uh, I'd like to say thank you very much. And I will next time. Bye.